0: What is up, you guys? Welcome to another Because I Said I Would podcast. As always, if you guys enjoy this podcast, if you get some value from this, reach out to a friend, send this to a friend, a family member, your sister, your brother, whoever you think could also get some value from this, whether it's your Instagram story, your Snapchat story. It helps me out a ton when you guys spread the word, and I appreciate it so very much. I love talking to you guys, and I really hope you get some value from this episode. Thank you guys so much in advance for listening. right, guys. Welcome back to the Because I Said I Would podcast. I have a very special guest today to talk to you guys about a whole bunch of things health and wellness related. Um, Obviously, I try to give you guys as much knowledge as I can personally, but I only have so much knowledge, so I love bringing on guests like this to help you guys learn a little bit more. Um, And today, in in particular, we're going to talk a lot about stress management. We're going to talk about your gut, about just everything that um, you might not even think about on a day-to-day basis, but that could overall impact your health. So, Thank you for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. I'm I'm excited to be on this podcast with you. Thank you for having me on. Very excited as well. All right. So just introduce yourself um, to the audience, let them know who you are, where they can find you, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit more about you. Awesome. So hi,
1: everyone. My name is Dr.
0: Priya. I'm a naturopathic doctor.
1: I currently live in San Diego as well. Um, You can find... Me on Instagram I do a lot of educational pieces there and I'm in the midst of starting my own telemedicine practice right
0: now. Awesome. I meant to also mention to you your Instagram is really good. The way you're you're <laughs> delivering content and everything, it's very um I don't know, I guess it just it works really well on Instagram. So it's definitely awesome what you're doing. And she does have a lot of great great content that's also very easy to digest as just like a normal person who maybe not doesn't have the knowledge that she has. It's very easy to understand what she posts. So definitely go out and check her out and give her a follow um, or remind you at the end as well. <laughs> but okay, cool. So naturopathic doctor, what does that mean to the average person? What is the difference between you and a typical doctor that they might go see?
1: Yeah, so a lot of people aren't familiar with naturopathic medicine. Essentially, what it is, is a more holistic approach to medicine. What What's different with us is, you know, we go through the four years, same type of curriculum. The first two years we're studying the anatomy, physiology, and all that stuff. And then the last two years, instead of focusing heavily on pharmaceuticals, we kind of deviate and we're focusing more on holistic nutrition-based medicine, working with herbs, supplements, like lifestyle changes to help support your body. Mm -hmm. So what I kind of like to think of it as is it's really focused on root cause. You know, a lot of the stuff that I do, I'm not ever going to be really prescribing anything that's symptom management unless it's necessary. Mm -hmm. What I'm doing is like diving in to understand like, why is this happening to your health? How do we undo this? And how do we get you back to being healthy without needing long-term medication? Right.
0: Right. That's awesome. And I I know we've had this discussion before, but for obviously the people who are listening who haven't heard me talk about this, I recently had an experience where I wasn't happy with, um, I guess how essentially I was going to a doctor for a dermatological reason, Mm -hmm. um, trying to fix something and Essentially, they just kept trying to throw me prescriptions and just saying, Well, this is our only option. And the, I was basically allergic to the antibiotic they gave me. So they said, Okay, the only other option is this, um, this steroid or something, or I don't know what it was. I think it was a testosterone blocker. And then they said, If you don't want to do that, the only other option is birth control. And like, there has to be something else. Like, this is all just prescriptions that you're throwing at me. But like, they didn't ask me anything about my lifestyle and how I'm managing stress or anything like that, what my diet is like. So once I pretty much right after that experience, I remember my, basically we're for anybody who's listening, Pri and I, we have mutual friends. So that's how I actually do know her from San Diego. And my one friend told me about her and, and, you know, her experience, um, as becoming a naturopathic doctor. And I was like, yes, I love that because I was getting so frustrated, you know, going to these doctors and just being thrown prescriptions without, you know, they'd sit down with me for like five minutes and be like, all right, here's a prescription, you know? Um, so for, for people, um, I guess we've never been to one before. What would an experience be like for them if they did go to a naturopathic doctor? Would it be, you know, do you ever prescribe anything? Is it always just, um, you know, trying to manage stress and things like that?
1: So when you come in to see a naturopathic doctor, it's very different than how it's set up with going to your regular doctor. Because, you know, when we go to see our doctors, usually it's kind of quick in and out. You're not spending that much time with the doctor Mm -hmm. um, at all, really. But then when when you come to us, um, a lot of people have their appointments set up where it could range between forty-five to ninety minutes for the first visit, and then progressively they get shorter. But you're coming in, and you're going to be asked so many questions. We really dive in deep on when did this happen, how did this happen, what are you doing for? We go into your lifestyle, we go into your past, so we try to get a full understanding of like what has happened thus far in your life to kind of shape up what your right. health is now. So mm-hmm. it's a lot more, it's a lot longer, it's a lot more intense, and then. Usually at that point, there's all, there's almost always going to be some lifestyle recommendations. And then on top of that, there'll be like supplement recommendations or like herb recommendations or other types of things of that nature. And we do prescribe medications. In the state of California, it's set up differently. So you have to be working under a medical doctor to prescribe some of the medications. But it's not... It's not out of like our realm where we, some doctors are a little bit more, I would say strict on it where they don't like prescribing any pharmaceuticals, but, um, there's a, there's quite a few of us that are more along the routes of integrative medicine where we understand like sometimes someone does need a medication and that's fine, but that's not going to be the, that's not going to be the end answer. You know, there's going to be a lot of other things that we do as well.
0: Awesome. Cool. Okay. So how did you get into this?
1: So I, just like you, and just like most people, I would say in my field, I had just really bad experiences going to the doctor. Um, When I was like 21, I developed really bad anxiety and stress. I had gut issues. I had hormonal issues. And I was so frustrated because I would go to the doctor and, you know, the only two answers they ever gave me were birth control Xanax over and over again. And it was just not doing it for me, you know? And so I eventually... You know, I was, when I was an undergrad, I was studying biological sciences and I took a gap year and I wanted to pursue going to pharmacy school. And I was on the route to do that. And then about like a couple of months before I was supposed to attend school, I was like, you know what? I'm really like, I myself am unhappy working in this field. I'm unhappy with what the medical system is right now. I don't want to contribute to this. So I dropped out and shifted gears towards holistic medicine and found um, naturopathic medical school and.
0: Yeah, now
1: awesome.
0: I'm here. Yeah, and it's great that it's all come from like your own personal experience of being frustrated with it and everything. Um, I do want to talk a bit more about that because I was actually reading through some of your stuff, mm-hmm. and particularly I think the thing that is most relatable, especially to women, is the pill <laughs> mm-hmm. and how many times it's kind of thrown at you when you go to the doctor. You know, whether it's for acne or if it's for your period in general or whatever situation, they're like, "Oh, what? Let's try getting you on the pill." Um, for me, I, there was one time. I forget when it was, but I was having irregular periods. I was getting them twice a month. And essentially what they told me is basically like what you just said, like the only option was to go on the pill to make it regular again. And it just, it seems strange to me then too. I'm like, how is that the only option? Like there's so much knowledge in this world. And the only thing we can think of is throwing us on the pill. Um, So tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you typically, you know, if you do have somebody who comes to you or um, know somebody who has issues with with their periods, what are some things that you typically suggest they do? Um, I know it's probably going to be very different person to person, but what are some things that they should look out for?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, like you said, a lot of people get recommended the pill, and you know, it's a whole different conversation if you want to do it for contraceptive care, but a lot of women get put on it because they have hormonal imbalances. And the thing about the pill is, it doesn't balance anything, it just shuts down your hormones. And then every month, you have what's called like a withdrawal bleed. So it's not really ever doing anything. And then when you do get off birth control, your cycles usually ends up being worse. Mm -hmm. So if someone's coming to me and they want to work on hormone balancing, you know, one of the first things I do is I get a really detailed idea of what's going on with their cycles. Like how often are you having it? What color is your bleed? How long does it last? Where are the symptoms before, during, after? So I get a really comprehensive understanding of what's happening. And usually that can kind of point you in the direction of whether it's like, Too much estrogen in the system too much testosterone not enough progesterone so you could you can get a good understanding based off of someone's cycle but then it's also really important to run labs there's one lab in particular that i love it's called the dutch test and what it does it not only tells you where your hormones are at but it goes into the detail of like where in the hormonal pathway are you having issues like at what point do we need to like support your system more Mm -hmm. so then That's when I go in, I do a lot of herbs, I do a lot of supplements to help, and of course, the lifestyle. And one of the biggest aspects of working on balancing your hormonal health is, one, looking at your gut. Well, I guess I said one. There's three big things I do. Um, Looking at your gut is so important. Looking at your liver is so important, and so is stress management. Mm -hmm. So these are like the three key pieces. You could throw as many herbs as supplements to balance the hormones themselves if you as you want but if those three pieces aren't working well like you're never going to really reach natural hormone right, right.
0: Mm-hmm. I love what you mentioned earlier and I'm sure that you've mentioned it actually multiple times in here but the fact that you don't do like symptom management or whatever you called it where you know I feel like so much of, of throwing being thrown on birth control is just trying to manage the symptoms of not having your period or it being regular or whatever and it's not actually taking care of the root cause which is could be something else, you know, could just be your lifestyle or whatever, stress, all that stuff. So that's, that's really awesome. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your experience? Cause I was reading a bit about that too, um, with birth control and what happened when you got off it and what eventually started to work for you in a more holistic, um, kind of sense.
1: Yeah. So I was on birth control, I think from the ages about 17 to 21. So Prior to that, I had really, really bad cycles. They were super irregular. Like, I could get two in one month, and then I would skip a month, and then they were just all over the place. They were excruciatingly painful. Like, I would be in bed the entire first day. Like, it just felt like I was being, like, essentially stabbed by knives. Like, it was so painful. And I went to the doctor, and she was like, hey, this is really your only option. Like, here's birth control. And so I didn't think anything of it. You know, I'm young. I don't know. Just take the pill. And then when I was around 21, I was just, I was just tired of taking medication every day. And this is when I really started to shift more towards a healthy lifestyle. And I was like, you know, I don't really have a reason to be on the pill and I don't want to be. So let me just discontinue it. Mm -hmm. And then when I did discontinue it, you know, I didn't go to a doctor or anything to do it. I just stopped. And my hormones just went so out of whack. So my testosterone shot up. My estrogen and progesterone were low. I had, when I did go to the gynecologist, because I was not getting my period, I was losing a lot of weight. Like it was, it was getting pretty bad. And I, I was losing hair too. So I went and without even running any labs or anything, she was like, sounds like you have PCOS, you should go back on the pill. And I remember being so devastated that day because I wasn't familiar with PCOS at the time. And then I went home and I read about it. And Mm -hmm. the two glaring things that stood out were infertility and eventually like getting to um, having diabetes. And I was like, Oh my God, what is going on with my body? Like no one in my family has this. Now all of a sudden I'm thinking about, am I ever going to have kids? Am I going to end up on medication the rest of my life? So it was really It was such, and that I think was the turning point for me because it was so upsetting to just have a doctor throw that diagnosis at you without really doing the heavy lifting of seeing what's really going on and then not even really educating me on what PCOS is outside of like, here's a pill. Right,
0: right. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. But then at that point, you know, I was like, forget this. I'm going to do my own thing. I really focused on Cleaning up my diet, I started working out more. I started um, reading up online about different herbs I could take and things like that. And after a few months, I was able to totally regulate my cycle. And once I started reading more into PCOS, because that's an area of interest of mine now, I realized I had a variant of it called post pill PCOS, which happens to a lot Mm -hmm. of women because if you've been on the pill for a while and you come off, your hormones just don't know what to do. So Mm -hmm. they go all over the place.
0: I never even knew that was a thing, post-pill PCOS.
1: Yeah, PCOS is a pretty interesting diagnosis because there's so many different versions of it. And it's something that within, you know, the health community, people are still trying to understand why it happens and what causes it. And Mm -hmm. so it's interesting.
0: Interesting. How did you end up, you know, getting your period to be more regular and less painful after getting off the pill?
1: So at first when I got off the pill, they weren't painful. They were, they were just so irregular and they were so light. It was almost like when my period would come, it would last two days. And then it didn't, I don't think it ever really ended up getting painful again after I came off the pill. It was prior to that. After the pill, it was almost like they didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did a lot of was I started, I started drinking spearmint and fennel tea every day. Um, I started working on eating healthier, focusing on liver-friendly foods because I, at that point, kind of knew like your liver matters so much when it comes to your hormones. Mm-hmm. And the working out piece was huge for me too because I used to I used to work out a lot, but I think I was overdoing it too, and I knew that that wasn't helping having high testosterone either. So I kind of scaled back and focused a little bit more on the cardio and sweating a lot versus like lifting really heavy at the time and Mm -hmm. things like that. And then once my hormones like rebalanced, I was able to go back into the gym and do things normally again. Right,
0: right. Um, When you say liver friendly foods, what, what kind of foods are those typically?
1: So things I think of off the bat are going to be like all your cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, the dark leafy greens, broccoli Mm -hmm. sprouts are incredible for your liver. And then beets are really good too, citrus. Um, Even now I still try to start off my mornings with lemon water because it's just so good for the liver. And then eating healthy fats like salmon and like avocados. So just basically it's like, It's really once you start getting into the habit of eating healthy foods, a lot of them tend to be really good for your liver, which is nice.
0: Awesome, cool. All right. Um, Overall, I mean, this the whole discussion about about periods, especially for women. I feel like it's one that not that it's a um, taboo. I guess I it's just a lot of women that I talk to specifically when they're coming to me for coaching or something um, we'll be talking, they'll say how much they, how little they eat. And, you know, they train a lot, all this stuff. And then I'm always like, I have a question. Like, are you getting your cycle? And a lot of people say no. And I think a lot of women too, just kind of ignore it. And they just assume like everything's going to be okay. Um, what would you say to a typical, you know, the average woman, if they are having an irregular cycle, is it something that they should be um, concerned about? Should they be checking up on it or just kind of wait to see if it works itself out?
1: I would say absolutely. I think, you know, when we talk about irregular periods, if you're consistently having irregular ones, then that's something to watch for. Like if you're going like three or more cycles and they're irregular, that is, I would say that's a red flag that something's going on. Mm -hmm. Your period can be easily thrown off by things. Like if you have a month where you're more stressed out and might be off and that's, that's natural. But if you're going like quite a few cycles in a row and they're irregular, for sure you should get it checked out and, your, hormo- your hormonal health, especially as a woman, matters so much for your overall health
0: mm-hmm. that you
1: can't put it on the back burner and not expect some negative consequences in the future.
0: Right. Absolutely. Great. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about bloating now because this is by far the most mm-hmm. common asked question in my, whenever I do one of those question stickers on my story, there's at least like five people that are like, help, I'm bloated all the time. Um, so first of all, in your opinion, I know there's probably multiple reasons, but overall, what what are the main reasons that cause bloating in most people?
1: Um, I would say the top two are having some sort of dysbiosis in your gut where your bacteria's, the rate, the ratio of good to bad bacteria is thrown off, um, and then stress. Oh, I should say three, and also eating foods that you're sensitive to. So those three, I would say, are the first three things I would look at.
0: Okay. That first one, can you go a little bit more in depth about that?
1: Yeah. So in your gut lining, you have – you have a really, you have a balance between having good bacteria and the bacteria that are kind of just like hanging out there. We call them um, like the mutual ones. And then of course there's pathogenic bacteria strains too that could cause a lot of issues. But if you have like really low numbers of the good bacteria and higher of those like medium folks or even like one or two of the bad guys, that's gonna cause a lot of gut issues for you. And a lot of this can happen because of, you know, history of antibiotic use. Mm-hmm. history of stress if you're eating foods that you're sensitive to over and over again so these things kind of shape up and lead to a poor gut health and then uh, and then additionally your diet plays a big role in that too if you're eating what's called like a monotone diet and you're not putting a variety of different fruits and vegetables into your diet regularly you're going to end up like favoring one strain of bacteria versus the other ones so you're not going to have that like good diverse population of good bacteria in your gut. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening is when you're eating, there's not, there's too much going on. You're having bloating, you're having irregular bowel movements and things like that.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, how, how would people know, this is always a common question for me too, but how would people know if they are sensitive to a certain food?
1: So for a lot of people, I feel like it's trial and error. We'll learn, they'll kind of have a, like a hunch themselves. When I eat this, I don't feel well. Some people come in and they just want to do a food sensitivity panel Mm -hmm. because, you know, they've eliminated eliminated a lot of things and they can't identify it. And like, I've had some patients come in and it's something so random that no one would have ever thought to pull out of their diet because it's not something people are usually sensitive to. So it could go either way. Um, A really solid approach to it is the elimination diet, where for a period of time, you eliminate all the top allergens like gluten, dairy, soy, corn, peanuts, those types of things. And then you slowly reintroduce them back into your diet. And if you're having issues, you can identify like what food it is. So it could go in a variety of ways. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, for anyone listening who might be confused about um, finding their own. I mean, for me, I never did any sort of like low FODMAP thing or anything like that. I just started to realize every time I had red onion, I would bloat so badly. <laughs> like I, I don't even remember when it was, but finally I realized like, oh my gosh, it's the red onion. Like as soon as I eat it, I puff up so much. Um, that and garlic too really, really affect me. But yeah, sometimes it's just, you'll, you'll start to realize, you know, you'll put two and two together. Like, okay, I added in broccoli this time and now I feel, you know, super bloated maybe it's the broccoli. Um, but then there's always, obviously you could go to a doctor like Priya to, to get a little bit more information and have them help you. So don't feel like you always have to do these things on your own, but cool. Okay. And then stress is the second one you said, what are some ways that you suggest people do stress management? You know, what are the top, I guess, kind of three ways that people can reduce their stress levels?
1: So I think one of the most powerful exercises for me has been to like sit down and really address what my stress is. So I do that through journaling while, where I'll sit down and I'll identify like, I felt really stressed out today. These are the reasons why. And then I try to come up with ways to either tackle them or just kind of find more soothing ways to be like, okay, this aspect of my life will be okay. Just kind of talking myself through it. Cause I think it's so, I think it's so powerful to be able to fully recognize your stressors because I see a lot of patients come in that are so stressed and they're stressed to the point where they don't even want to think about what's stressing them out. Right.
0: Right.
1: Power over them. So I think that's really powerful. Um, And then another one of my favorite ways is doing contrast showers. I don't know if you're familiar with those. No, I'm not. So they're a really great way to tone your vagus nerve and your nervous system. So basically what you do is in the shower, you'll do like five minutes of hot, a minute of cold, and you'll alternate a few times and what this is doing is that it's, it's promoting circulation in your body because it's opening and closing your vessels. And then it's also toning your nervous system. And this is one of the aspects of like stress resiliency that I teach people is that you can find daily practices that will help tone your nervous system so that you're more resilient when a stressor comes at you. So you have like a higher threshold Mm. and you can do this paired with like adaptogenic herbs and things like that. Like a big popular one people know about is ashwagandha. And so Mm -hmm. you can do these daily things that will actually help like train your nervous system essentially.
0: That's really cool. I've never heard of, I guess, stress resilience, but that makes so much sense. You know, obviously we're always gonna have a, at some point a stressor come in our lives if it's not every day. So it's it's better to be resilient to it than it's, I guess uh, you know, proactive rather than reactive. So that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. You've been talking a lot about herbs. How do you typically have these herbs? Is it usually just tea? Is it a supplement? So it'll depend. I
1: like to do a variety of teas, supplements, and tinctures. Um, I found that tinctures tend to be tinctures and supplements tend to be easier for people because it's quick. They can just take their dose in the morning or at night, whatever it is, and they'll be done with it for the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are a little bit harder to get people to be like compliant on, but there are some people that just really, really love drinking tea throughout the day, and there's some amazing herbal blends that you could put together that can help. Um, but mostly, I like doing tinctures and supplements.
0: Okay, and for people who might be interested in getting some, you know, whether it's ashwagandha or whatever, whatever they want. Is it, are these things you can find at a typical supermarket or is it more, you have to go to like a a holistic uh, market to find them?
1: So I think at a lot of the stores, like if you go into sprouts or whole foods, they'll have like certain tinctures in stock. Um, And a lot of them are really good. There are some like herbs and supplements that I would say, like it's better to go through a doctor and get them because you want to get like the higher pharmaceutical grade for them. Right. Some of them could be like more easily contaminated. There's some safe herbs you could take and it doesn't, necessarily matter what the source is and like supplements. Like one I could think of is like magnesium you could probably get at the grocery store and it's not as big of a deal, but there's certain ones that you do want to get like a higher um, grade of.
0: Mm -hmm. Magnesium is my favorite. I love taking that before bed. (laughs) It helps me go to sleep so (laughs) much. Um, Okay. So I know we we have talked about the fact that stress will cause some bloating. Can you go a little bit more in depth about why? I did talk about this a little bit on my story yesterday. I don't know if anybody listening saw that, but You obviously are a doctor, so you have more knowledge. So can you just sort of explain why being chronically stressed would affect things like bloating and even your cycle as well?
1: Of course. So you have your nervous system is split into your sympathetic nervous system and your parasympathetic nervous system. Your parasympathetic nervous system is what's known as rest and digest. It's when you're relaxed and your body's able to go through its regular functions and everything's good and then your sympathetic nervous system, which I think I, I did listen to your story yesterday. And I heard you talk about the um, fight or flight response. So that's what that's responsible for. And you, when you're in that state, your body's releasing adrenaline and cortisol. And the cortisol aspect is so important because having chronically high levels of cortisol can really mess with your body's functions. So what's happening is when you are in a sympathetic state, your Blood vessels are constricting, so you're not getting good um, blood flow. Everything's kind of being shunted, like to your essential organs, to keep you like going and alive. Mm-hmm. And your body's in this state of essentially like, what do I need to do to keep myself alive? So then, that's when you start to see the issues with the digestion, because digestion's not going to be at the top concern of your body. That's not going to be one of the things that it's concerned about. So a lot of people, when they're stressed and they eat, they always they like feel. Loaded and they get stomach aches afterwards because their body's not taking the time to really digest their food and be able to do it effectively and at the same time that's why we start to see all, like sugar cravings and weight gain when people are chronically stressed out because when you're in that state of mind your body doesn't have as good of a capability to break down the more complex macronutrients like proteins and complex carbs and fats it wants like that Quick sugar source. So it wants that bread, it wants that pasta because it's so easy to digest mm-hmm. and it's so easy for it to use. And then when this is happening, not only is that feeding into, you know, your insulin um, sensitivity, but cortisol itself increases your insulin. So over time, that's why we see this trend where one of the consequences of chronic stress can be obesity because when you're craving foods that are Not ideal for your body, and two, your body's already in a state where it wants to increase its insulin. So the two kind of go hand in hand. And then cortisol just does so much because, at the flip side, it's also affecting all your hormones so much. When it comes to your thyroid, it's lowering your thyroid's capability to work efficiently. So you kind of end up with lower thyroid hormones. This leads to a more sluggish metabolism. So you're not able to use the food that you're eating more as properly. The metabolism's going low. It's also feeding um, into the relationship with your reproductive um, sex hormones. So it's increasing your estrogen levels, too, and it's lowering your progesterone levels, too. So you start to see like all these wonky things happen with your cycle. Mm-hmm. And when you do get that increased estrogen, too, that's where you start to see that classic picture of estrogen dominance, where you're having really bad PMS, you're having those sugar cravings, you're getting the acne. So really having like these long-term, this long-term elevation of cortisol is impacting so many pathways in your Mm -hmm. body. Um,
0: So yeah, that's just kind of like a little, that's a little like scrape off the surface. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I'm sure. This, this just reminded me of, I, so I've dealt with bloating. I mean, I've talked about this on my page too, but I've dealt with bloating so much over the years. Um, and I went to multiple doctors. I went to obviously my normal doctor. They took tests to make sure there you know wasn't anything serious going on. And then after that, they were basically just like, I don't know, like you could go to a, a nutritionist or something. So that's what I did. I went to a dietitian, and she basically looked at what I was eating because I was eating very healthy at the time as well. And she was like, I don't know, <laughs> essentially. And she said, well, you could try eating a little bit less fiber or something like that to help with the bloating. But at this time too, I remember... Something that was so frustrating for me is like during the week when I was eating healthy and just like normally and just going through my days I was always so bloated but on the weekends when I kind of took myself away from being so strict with my diet and everything and just you know letting myself live carefree I wouldn't be bloated. And I think looking back now it it, it wasn't necessarily about what I was eating so much as it was I was just less stressed on the weekends and I wasn't being so like oh my gosh I'm bloated oh my gosh I'm bloated and that just caused me to be less bloated. And it's so weird to like just I've been through here and back with the bloating thing too. And, you know, seeing all different doctors and it definitely is frustrating. I know a lot of people listening to have probably had the frustration of going to many doctors and everyone basically saying like, Oh, I don't really know. You know, it's just, you have IBS, right? That's, I think that's another thing that's just thrown out. Like you just have IBS. What does that mean? Like, how am I actually going to manage that? Um, But things like stress management, I think it's a huge one that again, no doctor ever told me to do. No doctor ever asked me about my stress levels and once I did start managing them more, especially this year, I've been feeling amazing. So it's huge. Um, what about like digestive enzymes, probiotics? How does that all impact our gut?
1: They're so great for your gut. I love probiotics. I, I like them in food sources. I've noticed that they settle better with me than in like pills or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of kombucha, sauerkraut, fermented foods. Digestive enzymes are great, too. You can take them before you're about to eat, like, 10, 15 minutes before, and it kind of gets your body ready to start digesting. I use them both a lot when I'm working gut healing because some people just tend to not have as – if you've had, like, long-term gut issues, typically you would need gut enzymes um, or probiotics to kind of help nudge you in the right direction while you're working on gut healing.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. And for people who maybe don't deal with that much bloating, but do feel like they might be like chronically stressed, what are some other, I guess, symptoms that they might feel if they're chronically um, having higher cortisol levels?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we can definitely like the classic pictures of stress and anxiety where you think about someone just can't focus as well. They're feeling like a little shakier than usual, that kind of thing. And then when we're looking at like your hormonal cycle as well it's really important to identify is there's something going on with the thyroid like are you do you keep gaining weight and you can't keep it off no matter what you're doing that could be a huge sign that your cortisol is high and that's impacting your thyroid function or vice versa mm-hmm. if you're experiencing hair loss if you're having um if you feel like you have poor circulation if you're getting lightheaded when you're standing up quickly These can all be signs pointing at your cortisol is out of control.
0: Okay. I didn't know that the standing up fast, uh, the the lightheadedness, I never knew that was a a sign of it, but I guess that makes sense because it doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes I'll have like a phase where it just constantly happens every time I stand up fast. Yeah. Very interesting. And that's just due to poor circulation?
1: Yeah. So it's usually linked to what we call adrenal fatigue, where your body's just it's, it's kind of tapped out when it comes to the cortisol. Usually that happens a little more down the line when you've been stressed for so long that kind of an inverse happens and your cortisol starts to taper down, but not in a good way. You're just having really irregular spikes and drops of it. And so after a while, like you'll start to get that, what we call orthostatic hypotension, where if you stand up too quickly, you get lightheaded because your body's just not, the circulation is off at this point. So it's not able to get the blood quick enough to your brain.
0: Wow. That's pretty crazy. I never knew that either. Learning new things. Every day. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Um, oh, there was one more thing I was going to ask you and now I can't remember what it was. Hmm. Can't remember it. Um, well, I guess another, another factor, I know a lot of times, you know, high cortisol levels and just constantly being stressed can it impact your ability to lose weight. Can it also impact your ability to gain weight as in like muscle mass and things like that for people who are more focused on that kind of, side of things Mm
1: -hmm. definitely um so cortisol has an interesting relationship with testosterone where the higher your cortisol the lower your testosterone falls so that's why we see people that might not be able to keep on weight or not be able to gain muscle no matter how hard they're trying they just don't have enough testosterone in their body to support it because their stress is so high
0: okay um very crazy it's all and i think it's crazy too I actually saw a meme about this the other day, a meme or some sort of post, but I definitely think stress management should be a topic in schools, you know, high schools, colleges, but it's not. You know, I think a lot of, um, I guess, motivational speakers and stuff too. They they always tell you like stress is good, stress means you're a hard worker. I did talk about this on my story yesterday too, but I just think it's it's crazy. Like, why cause yourself to be Um, unhealthy and unhappy now just to, you know, maybe have a better life in the future. Like it should be that you are healthy, happy all the time and you're still, you know, trying to improve yourself. So stress management is a huge thing. Last thing I have a question about is caffeine. What are your opinions on caffeine? Is it bad for us, good for us in moderation and how can it impact us, I guess, in both negative and positive ways? So
1: caffeine can it's definitely good for you in moderation. Like it could be really beneficial in certain ways. Um, I drink caffeine. I drink like either like one cup of coffee or one cup of matcha a day. I think it's when you start dipping past that and it becomes a dependence where you need more than one cup. Or if you're waking up and you're like, I need my coffee to get my day going. Because now that, that's, a, that's a byproduct of almost like stress management. Where it's either you're so stressed you need the caffeine to keep you stimulated and focused. Or, you know, your sleep is so off, and that's, it. That's we haven't talked about sleep yet, but sleep is such a big part of your health, and then if you're getting really poor sleep chronically and you need that caffeine to keep you up during the day, that's a really bad sign too. So caffeine I think is good in moderation, I have nothing against it, but I think it's when you start really relying on it that it could be bad for you, because it's really an indicator that you're just trying to mask up other things going on.
0: It's so funny all these topics are just so applicable to my life right now but I I also have been very exhausted the past week and typically like in the past I would just try to push through it and you know just still force myself to go work out late at night or just have like three cups of coffee and just be like it's whatever got to work hard um but this week I took it a lot differently than I would have in the past and I was like listen obviously my body's trying to tell me something it's tired like I need some extra rest I decided, you know, instead of having a second cup of coffee one day to just take a nap instead, um, ended up sleeping for two hours because I was that tired. Last night, I almost slept for 12 hours. So it was like, you know, it's just nice to, I guess, um, actually take care of my body for once rather than, you know, just be like too bad. My body can wait and just push myself in the other direction. But in terms of sleep, how much is enough and how much is too much, if that's even a thing?
1: <laughs> so it really depends on the person. I would say anywhere between like seven to nine hours is healthy. Some people tend to be on the higher end. I myself, I like to get closer to nine hours of sleep. Some people are great off of seven. I think anything below or under is when we start to get a little bit more concerned. Um, if you're under sleeping, then you're not giving your body the proper time to rest and do all those recovery functions while you're sleeping. And if you're oversleeping, your body's just taxed out and that's not a good sign either. Right.
0: Right. Okay. And for somebody who is chronically exhausted and and always feels like they need more caffeine or feels like they're not sleeping enough, what, what do you suggest they do besides obviously like get some more sleep, but is there anything else they should do throughout the day to help them maybe wake up a little bit more, refresh their body, anything like that?
1: Yeah. So I think being in sync with You know, the sun and the moon really matters because that ties back so much to your melatonin and your melatonin in your body is the hormone that's responsible for kind of cueing to your body like, hey, it's time to go to sleep, time to wake up. So really trying to get into the habit of, you know, when the sun goes down, try to like really limit your exposure to blue light. So your phone, your laptop, the TV, and if you do need to be exposed to it or like blue light blockers that'll kind of help get your body in the mindset. Okay. It's like time to unwind. It's time to start creating more melatonin. It's time to like go to bed because blue light can do the opposite and keep us wired longer. Mm -hmm. I would also say like when you get up in the morning, really depend, I know it's kind of hard depending on where you live, but if you can like just try to step outside, get some natural sunlight. So that'll help wake your body up. That'll help put your body in the mindset of like, Hey, it's daytime now. Now it's the time to get active, start building that energy, that type. So practicing optimizing your melatonin production is probably one of the biggest things if you're having trouble with sleep. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, going back to that stress management, which is probably the thing. If your cortisol is off, that's probably going to be the thing that really impacts your sleep the most.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's definitely what was my problem this past week. Finally feeling refreshed today, but I was waking up like every single day just so tired, feeling like I barely even slept. And then taking naps and still feeling tired and relying on caffeine. And I was like, clearly my body needs some more, some more time. So that's what I did. Um, cool. I mean, all of this is, is super helpful. I think for a lot of people, I guess my last question about sleep then would be if somebody's not getting enough sleep, how is that going to impact their ability to lose weight?
1: So if you're not getting enough sleep, a lot, like a few things can happen, um, Again, you have that relationship where your stress is going to go up, your cortisol is going to go up, so that's going to impact everything that we talked about previously. And then typically when you're more fatigued, your body's not functioning as optimally, so you fall into the habit of maybe reaching for foods that are easier to digest like in terms of like things that are higher in sugar, things that are simpler. You have those like mm-hmm. sweet cravings almost, and so that's going to impact your ability to lose weight it's going to help increase your insulin and that's going to impact your ability to lose weight. And I think, you know, obviously the biggest one is when you're tired, like you're just not hundred percent, even if you go to the gym, I know myself, the days where I've been tired and I'm like, no, it's fine. I'll go work out. Like I need to, I'll feel good after I get to the gym and I have like the worst workout of my life. <laughs> you're like, you, I, like you're never going to meet your goals in that way because you're just exhausted every time you show up.
0: Absolutely. And is it to um, your leptin, is it your leptin hormone is increased when you don't get enough sleep? Yes. Yes. And that's your, your appetite essentially, right?
1: Yeah. So it's helping increase that appetite and you know, your body just wants to feel nourished in some way. And if it's not getting nourished through sleep, it's going to turn to food.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. See all of this, I feel like is so helpful too, because I think a lot of people are really hard on themselves and they're like, I don't know why I'm always craving food when, excuse me, it could just be like. Actually, your body, your hormones. Not, it's not because you mentally like want the food. It could just be that there's something your body's trying to tell you, like, hey, I'm kind of run down. Like, we need to rest a bit more, or something like that. So that's yeah. that's huge. And I do think too, um, for a lot of people, they almost get a little obsessed with working out, and they're working out, you know, six, even maybe seven times a week, and they're not letting their body rest. And if you're feeling extra hunger then, or extra fatigue then, that's obviously a clear sign too that your body's overworked. So you need to to cool down a bit. Um, I guess that will be my last question is how does overtraining affect our bodies? And especially women, I guess, with our cycles, what happens when we're overtraining?
1: So when we're overtraining, you know, you see a lot of women who just don't have cycles after a while. And this is pointing to the fact that they have too much testosterone in their system at this point and not enough estrogen progesterone. So we see that shift if you're lifting a lot of heavy weights um, that can happen. And it's so common to see women who are competitive, like bodybuilders, like get the diagnosis of PCOS for this very reason. Mm-hmm. So that can definitely be a cause of it. And then a lot of people train a lot, but then they don't understand how much they need to nourish their body to compensate yep. for it. You know, they stay like they work out a ton and they still like, they still hang out around like 1800 calories a day, which mm-hmm. is just not enough to like be able to support your body doing that much work. And so you have these nutritional deficiencies, you start falling into being, you know, deficient in certain things, anemic, whatever it may be, and that's affecting your cycle and your hormones as well. So Mm -hmm. it's a lot, a lot can happen, but definitely overtraining is not it's not good for your body. You have, like we talked about, you have to give your body that time to rest so it can work on optimizing all the other functions going on inside your body, you know, maintaining your metabolism appropriately. Being able to maintain your cortisol appropriately, having proper hormonal cycle, and mm-hmm. all that good stuff.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but is it worse Perhaps. almost for women to overtrain than for men to?
1: I would say so because men don't have as many hormonal fluctuations. You know, they mm-hmm. stay pretty steady with their hormones, whereas our bodies are designed like we we need to be a little bit more delicate with ourselves, and we need to like know okay during this phase of my cycle, like it's better to support myself by resting a little bit more. Right. Than, and whatnot, so it can definitely. I mean, it's never good to overtrain, but I think women can be a little bit more sensitive to it, just because we do have those hormonal fluctuations.
0: Right, right. And again, this is also applicable. But I had a. I basically had the female athlete triad. I'm sure I'm sure you you know of that. But for anybody who doesn't know of it, essentially, it's when you're overtraining, you're not eating enough, and you basically end up becoming osteo. Is am I saying that right? Osteoporotic. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and essentially your, your bones get a bit weaker. I ended up with a stress fracture in my femur and this happened to me two different times, actually. So it happened to me when I was a freshman in college and then it happened to me a little over a year ago. And what, what irritates me about the whole thing is even when I went to the doctor um, with these issues, he said, oh, well, you shouldn't even, you know, be having a, a stress fracture or in this female athlete triad, because this is typically for people who are gymnasts or who are um, ballerinas or whatever, and I'm like, they, it's almost like a stereotypical thing that he was saying, like why I, I guess diagnosis diagnoses if that's the, the proper term, or um, just I guess health concerns and things like that. It's it's not. Just certain people that are going to have it, you know, e- even though you're not a competitive bodybuilder, if you're listening, or even though you're not a gymnast or whatever, you could still be dealing with, you know, not fueling yourself enough or overtraining or anything like that. And you still want to be careful. Um, and it's just things like, you know, the female athlete triad. I wish I knew about that before I was in the situation I was in, because honestly, having a stress fracture in your femur is not fun because then you can't train and then you can't work out. And even though you can technically still walk, you know, you, you want to make it heal and all that stuff. So the more knowledge we can get out to people, the better overall, especially for women, please do not barely eat. There's no point to do it. Um, and I guess, you know, I mean, same thing for men, but especially women, you know, we have a lot that we need to take care of in our bodies and it's it's definitely better to be overall healthy than to be at a lower body fat percentage, at least in my opinion. But anyway, I think that's all the questions. Do you have anything else you want to share with us or pretty good?
1: No, I think we really went through a lot of stuff today. A lot of good knowledge. Awesome.
0: All right. Well, you guys, if you do have more questions or want to learn more about any of these topics or even more topics, definitely make sure to go follow Priya. Can you um, tell us your Instagram handle again?
1: Yes. It's Priya, and that's spelled P-A-R-I-A.
0: Awesome. Find her on Instagram. And then also if somebody is interested in actually coming to see you being one of your patients, how would they go about doing that?
1: So I have in my bio a link to my website and you just click on it and you on the very first page, you could sign, um, sign up to get emails to notify when my appointments are available. You just have to put in your first last name and your email address.
0: Awesome. And then also just tell us a little bit about the retreat that you have coming up soon.
1: Yes, of course. So I'm co-facilitating a retreat in Idlewild, California, and it's going to be a three day event. I'm working with a holistic, um, Therapist and life counselor. Her name is Maria. She's been in this field for over 25 years. She's incredible. And basically, what the whole um, premise of the retreat is going to be is stress management and resiliency. So, she's going to be talking a lot about, um, she's going to be leading a lot of workshops about like emotional and mental healing when it comes to stress and identifying like where these thoughts are coming from, really digging down into um, like the root cause of them. And then I'm going to be doing a lot of workshops revolving around physiologically supporting your body so like with herbs tinctures supplements things like that it's going to be a great time i'm excited
0: awesome and how long is the retreat
1: it's three days so it's going to be thursday friday saturday and then sunday morning it wraps up
0: awesome and covid friendly right
1: yes definitely covid friendly we're going to have everyone
0: tested beforehand there we go perfect Cool. All right. Well, you guys, if you're interested in any of that, make sure to go over to her Instagram page, give her a follow, even if you're not interested in the retreat, Um, just for some more information. I mean, she has some great posts too. that will definitely teach you guys a bit more. So thank you again for being on here. Um, And if you guys have any questions, feel free to reach out to either one of us and have a great day, Priya. Thank
1: you so much. Bye.